Hi, I'm Frances Katzen and welcome to my podcast, The World of Real Estate. In this series, we will explore the world's largest asset class and how it plays out on a global scale. I'm so excited to introduce Howard Lorba, who is the president and CEO of Vector Group and the chairman of its subsidiary, Douglas Elliman. Howard is one of New York's most powerful real estate moguls, acquiring the brokerage in 2013 and growing it across America's top luxury markets. He's an active member of the Jewish community and a true New Yorker. An advisory to many, he also happens to be my boss and I consider him a friend. Thank you so much, Howard, for being my guest today. My pleasure. Pleasure to be here. But I think most people that know you would say that you're my boss, Francis. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. <laughs> you always flip it on me, always. <laughs> um, so let's start with our first question today, which is how would you describe yourself? Uh, that's probably the toughest of the questions. Um, how you I start with your, the tough ones first. Yeah, how you describe yourself. Um, I think I'm, I'm a, uh, or try to be, in most cases, a pretty understanding person. Um, I, I guess one way I could maybe describe myself is, you know, and I used to tell my children this for years, and I think you've probably heard me say it to lots of brokers. I, I say, I, I make mistakes every day, but I don't make the same mistakes. If you make the same mistakes every day, then something's wrong with you. So I think that's uh, how I live my life. I don't mind making mistakes. I don't mind people that uh, I partners with or work with. I don't mind them making mistakes because if you don't try different things and you don't try new things, you're never going to make a mistake, but you're never really going to get any place. So make a lot of mistakes. I've made a lot of mistakes, but I don't make the same mistakes. I think that's a very important distinction. Wow. May I ask where you grew up? I was born in the Bronx uh, near really? Yankee Stadium. Yeah, near Yankee Stadium. Uh, we lived with uh, my uh, grandmother and grandfather, my mother's parents at the time. And um, my grandfather passed away when I was about, I think, three or four, so I don't really remember him. Uh, my grandmother, uh, when I was eight, my grandmother decided to sell. She had a two-family house uh, and decided to sell it and then give the money to my parents. And we bought a, uh, I should say they bought a uh, house in Paramus, New Jersey, which when we went there was sort of uh, just all farmlands. It was the suburbs, um, and we moved. My my uh, brother, let me just think, my brother wasn't born yet, but my sister, myself, my grandmother, my grandfather had passed away, and my mother and father. So we moved there to Paramus. And, um, it so was, a very tight family, very yeah, close. It was, yeah, yeah, it was, it was uh, well, I think that's the only way that we could have done it because, you know, the house was worth enough money to buy the house in, in the Bronx, to buy the house in Paramus. And uh, so my grandmother shared a room with my sister. I shared a room with my brother who came a little bit later. And uh, my mother and father had uh, their own, uh, they had a bedroom. And I remember the house, it was a split level house. It wasn't big. I think we had we had one, one full bath and one half bath in, in the house, which oh I always left myself. You know, you talk about being spoiled and getting used to things. I can't even share a bathroom, you know, for all the years I was married. I couldn't even share a bathroom with my wife. So it's... it's. Uh, so that formed your idea of the world in some ways, would you say? Yeah. 
Yeah, it did. It did. And, and it, it was a happy, it was a happy time, you know, being was in the it? suburb. My, uh, in order for me to feel better about moving, um, my parents decided they would buy me a dog since we were going to the suburb. <laughs> so we moved, we got the dog, we moved and the dog hated me. The dog bit me like 10 different times. <laughs> but, um, so one day my, my mother's brother showed up and he said, uh, she saw what was going on. I said, look, we have to get rid of the dog. And he took the dog. And I don't know who he gave it to or whatever, but uh, I never saw the dog again. What kind of dog? Good thing at that time. It, it was a mixed breed. It was, uh, you know, okay. uh, mixed breed or something. Rather. So you grew up, would you say you grew up religious, affluent? You know? uh, religious, you know, no. I, in fact, I, I never really called myself religious. I, I'm, I'm, I'm spiritual. I yes. like the spirituality of it. Um, I, I don't like, um, I, I think there's a very, very small difference from one religion to another to begin I with. I agree. Um, mm -hmm. So you can argue the, diff the little differences, you know, and come to whatever conclusion you want. Uh, but I like the spirituality of it. Um, I go, you know, I, I go when I want to go. I don't feel like I'm obligated to go to synagogue all the time. So I go when I want to do it. Yep. And uh, what I learned, what I learned uh, when I started uh, coming out to Southampton, that uh, there was a new synagogue, which was a uh, Chabad, mm -hmm. and that I I went I went once to a Saturday service. It was like three hours. I wanted to kill myself. So <laughs> Friday night, I found out the Friday night service was only about thirty five minutes. So when I'm here, when I'm in Southampton and I'm not going out early or whatever, I go I go there. Do you? And, uh, and I, I actually enjoy it. So it's a spiritual thing. And I, my father at the time when we moved to Jersey, I think. They, he was involved in the original group that started uh, what was called the Jewish Community Center of Paramus. Oh, wow. And so uh, we went there, but it was a uh, conservative. Um, so it wasn't pushed on you. It was just it an exposure to. Mm -hmm. Look, what was pushed on me is going to Hebrew school because I never met a kid that liked Hebrew school yet. You know, <laughs> no. So everyone sort Horrible. of like part of the religion. You hate, you hate Hebrew school. Yeah. And, uh, and were your my, parents born in America or? Yeah, yeah they, they both were born in America. So my father's father, my grandfather, my father's side uh, was born in Poland. Mm -hmm. um, my mother's mother and father were from uh, Saloniki, Greece. So yeah. they were Greek oh, Jews, right. which uh, is a whole another story. But they left they left Greece early, like right around uh, the end of World War One. So. Um, Thank God, because the story with the Jews in Greece was, you know, when the Nazis invaded Greece, they basically wiped out all of the Jewish population of Greece and they uh, sent them to Auschwitz and, Jesus. you know, everyone perished. And uh, I remember discussing it with my, you know, grandmother because she used to have this view. She used to say, you know, the Greeks were great people, uh, but the, the Turks, the Turks were terrible, yes, you know, yes, the Turks were barbarians. So one day I'm in school, at, at the, I was probably middle school, mm -hmm. and I'm in a history geography class, and all of a sudden I'm, you know, they're showing, you know, because Greece and Turkey went back and forth. Yes. Saloniki was once Saloniki was three different things. It was part of the Ottoman Empire. Yes. Then at one time it was Turkey, then it was Greece, then it was Turkey, and then it was Greece again. So it was back and forth. But I, I figured out and looking at this map and the timeline that my, when my grandparents were born. Um, in Saloniki, it was really Turkey. So I went home that day and I said, Grandma, you've been telling me for all this time <laughs> that, the, uh, that the Turks are barbarians and the Greeks are great, but you're really a Turk. So she went crazy. She didn't talk to me for a few days about that because I was insulted. 
very insulting to her, but we got past that. Now, how does a Greek family meet a Polish expat? How how did that work? I mean, your grandfather was Polish on your father's side. yeah, my father's family. My father's yes. family was Polish. My mother's was. Yes. Was so Greek. how did that come oh, together? Well, they met in New York. You know, they okay. they, they met in New York. Um, um, they got married fairly young, and I forgot I forgot how they met. But they both lived local. My mother actually uh, lived on the uh, Lower East Side. And my father not too far from there, okay. so it was interesting. You know what the Lower East Side was then compared to what the Lower East Side is now. Um, and and, and it's also job? interesting. My mother my mother lived there um, because when her parents came to, from from Saniki, came to America, that's where the Greek Jews were going. In fact, there's an old Greek church that still exists there on, a, on Broom Street, actually. Uh, the part of Broom Street that's really not so old, but the part of Broom Street... And it's been there. It's been there forever, and um, that's wow. where they. Wow. That's where they. That's where they moved to, and that's where my mother, you know, stayed for a while. Wow, wow! So they met in America as immigrants. My mother making, and father. Yes, my mother, uh, my, my your grandparents. My grandparents. Yes, my grandparents. Yes. My grandparents met when they came to the states. Yes, and what correct. were their jobs coming in as a skilled laborer? I mean, what was their profession? No, they were they were young. They were they were basically uh, teen, they were teen, late teenagers when they came, because they came around nineteen. Uh, say, if I remember, nineteen eighteen, something like that. Wow, Howard, yeah. that's quite a history. Yeah. And my grandmother was great because my my grandmother, when we moved to Paramus, my grandmother's uh, job in the house was she was the cook because my mother was not a very good cook. <laughs> That's so a good she was cook, cook to have. Yeah, she was food. a good cook. I remember going to school, you know, she would make my lunch. So in those days, all the kids in, in school were eating, uh, you know, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, American and you got tara masalata sandwiches. Yeah, and I, and, I, and I was eating spinach sandwiches and feta cheese sandwiches. So it was different, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, that's amazing. Um, what, so... So how did you become an accountant? So let's jump well, forward a bit. I, you know, I never wanted to be. I, I didn't know what I wanted to be. I, I think in my early years, I wanted to be a veterinarian. So that's what I wanted Really? To be. You would have been amazing. Why didn't you do it? You love animals. But by the time I was in high school, uh, my sights were more on becoming uh, an electrical engineer. I was now, a geeky sort of kid, you know, when it comes to through electronics and radios and stuff like that, and so were you I an introvert? That. No, I was an introvert. I had a, I had a bunch of friends, okay. but I liked uh, I liked electronics things. So, um, did your dad support that and your mom, or yeah, were you yeah, just- yeah, my, yeah, 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 they were they, they they were fine with it. My father had started his own business as an electrician. Okay, um, it was not quite the same thing I had in mind. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, I. You know, I remember him taking me to work once or twice, and after after going to work once or twice with him, I said, "I can't do this." You know, so <laughs> short that was short lived. Was he hurt? <laughs> uh, no, I don't think I don't I, I don't think so. But but he he developed a small business, and it was a building boom. So we started, you know, doing wow. being you know electrical contractor and doing electrical work in all these new houses that was going on in the building building boom. 
And my mother basically was home most of the time. In the later years, she became a, uh, a bookkeeper, I think, for, uh, uh, I think it was Grand Union. Wow. Um, How yeah. old were you when she started taking a position? Uh, I think I was probably um, late high school, yeah, almost the end of high school, beginning of college. And so at that point, you had now said, I'm not going to be an electrician. I'm not going to run the business. I'm going to Yeah, I wasn't going to work for my father. And, I, and, I, and so I, w I found a school, a, small, a school out in Long Island. It was CW Post College, which was part of Long Island University. And they actually had an engineering program. So I uh, went in there to be in the engineering program. But after the first year, they terminated the program. They didn't have enough people in it. So I didn't know what to do. So I asked around and I decided, I asked around, I said, so, you know, to people, I questioned them. So what's the easiest major to take to graduate without <laughs> doing too much work? So I was advised that I should become a sociology major. So I said, fine, that sounds easy. So I was a sociology major. The problem was that by the time I graduated and I was a sociology major and I said to myself, boy, what are you going to do then? I wasn't going to be a social worker. I said, you know, I want to be in business. I wanted to be in sales. So it's, it really was something that wasn't uh, <clears throat> the, right, the right thing for me to do, except. How did you easy. know you wanted to be in sales? Um, I, you know, I, I always, I always uh, had a lot of friends. I just felt that I had a, a, a chance to be good in sales, but I wasn't really sure at the time. You know, when I say sales, it was a bunch of different type of things. A lot of it was finance related type of thing. Uh, like when I graduated college, I became a stockbroker. So you'd say that sales one. And then after Which that, I business. So I, but one thing I realized right away being, you know, being a stockbroker, for instance, is you have to understand finances. You have to understand how to read a balance sheet and a profit and loss statement. And I really didn't have any training in it. So I went back to school and I got a master's degree. Yeah. Wow. I never became a CPA because yet yeah, there's a work requirement to become a CPA. Okay. So you can have a degree, but so got I wasn't it. a CPA, but I had an accounting background and then I took a master's degree in uh, tax. So I was very good in accounting and tax. And that really helped me a lot going into business. And how old were you at that time? Because you had gone <clears> back now. Well, then I started college. I was 18, but yeah. I worked since I was about 13. Wow. Um, I think my first job was at a uh, a pizza parlor around the corner from my house. <laughs> Get out. Yeah. And, Were you uh, rolling the dough or prepping? Yeah, it? I was pretty good. I actually could flip the pizzas. And I was, was uh, chubby, chubby. I was this chubby little Jewish kid like in a pizza place making pizzas. It was, it was pretty. And how much were you making? I don't even remember, you know, how much could have been in those days. A dollar an hour? I don't know. Did you have fun? So, did you enjoy it? I liked it. I liked it. Then I left for a bigger job. I became a busboy at the uh, IHOP, the National wow, House. Wow, IHOP. Yeah. Wow. And then I went from there when I was about 15 or 16. Uh, I went and I worked uh, in a gas station because I was into cars, which I think a lot of kids that age are into cars. And, and I was pretty good. Besides pumping gas, I was, you know, in those days, you had to change spark plugs, tune an engine. I, I was pretty good at that. So I liked it. I was, you know, maybe that's part of my being mechanically inclined. So that was, you know, that was a lot of fun. And so you I got a that. lot of exposure into all forms of hospitality, of service industry, of entrepreneurial. Well, I, I, I like to work, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, more fun than doing nothing. Yeah. And uh, obviously in those days it really wasn't the money, but there was the money to some degree. Yeah. And um, so it was, uh, 
a lot of great experiences along the way for sure. So now fast forward, you've graduated, you've got your degree, you've now got a, a background in tax, uh, a CPA. Um, now you want to be a stockbroker. So not, not, a CPA, not a CPA. Sorry, but to sort of get into the backbones of it, of accounting. Right. So now where do you go? What happens next? So as uh, luck would have it, it was pretty bad stock market. So I, I couldn't get a job in any of the uh, big <laughs> firms. It was, it was tough. And with my background, you know, they were taking top people from top schools. So in any event, I found a small firm in New Jersey, in Fort Lee, New Jersey, um, which you got, got hired. Because they don't pay anything. You have to, you know, make cold calls and get clients. So you eat what you kill, basically. Yeah. And interestingly, it was a very interesting experience because the market was terrible. And I was good on the phone. So I'd be calling people. I opened up so many accounts because, and I figured out why. I never lost the people any money because I wasn't in the business. <laughs> and everyone I called was losing money with their existing broker. Now, so if, like I was the broker, yeah, if I was their existing broker at that time, I would have been, they would have been losing money with me also. So I cold called, I opened a lot of accounts and I started to build, I started to build the business. Um, and I did that. Then I was able to get a job at a uh, better firm um, in, in New York City, uh, which I did. And then, uh, then after that, I I was doing, it was a small firm. The first one was called um, uh, um, Furkoff Rogan. It was the Furkoff from the Furkoff family, who I think were the founders of Corvettes. Remember the old Corvettes? Wow. Wow. You're too young to remember that, Franz. I'll take that. Thank you. But um, (laughs) it it was- And how long uh, were you there, Howard? It was fun. Well, my whole whole stock brokerage career started in September of uh, 70 when I graduated college. And I left at the end of uh, 74. And so it was about you, four years. You did well. And it was four years of a lousy market. <laughs> so I didn't, to be honest. Okay. It was a terrible time. The worst time for a stockbroker when people are losing money was around tax time because their accountant <laughs> did all the tax stuff and they'd call you up and they'd say, I can't believe how much money I lost in a market with you. And you know, I, I, never knew, I never knew what to say. So after a while, I came up the only thing I think I could say to maybe stop the conversation. So they, they complain about it when they tell me how much they lost. And I'd say, oh, well, that's not bad. I thought you lost more. <laughs> I don't know if they all laughed like I'm laughing. <laughs> they all laughed, but that stopped the conversation anyway. At that particular <laughs> okay, so now fast forward. After that time as a stockbroker in a lousy market, what next? Okay, so then I decided that... Um, I met some people and uh, actually my my father-in-law at the time was a CPA. Um, okay, so you were married? Married. Yeah, I got okay. married right after. Fair. He was wow, a CPA. He, he actually he was an accounting professor at the school I went to. Got it. At CW. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's why his daughter was there. That's where we met. Okay. And he was doing... So he was also uh, he was formerly an IRS agent, and he was involved in the in the uh, you know in those days there were Keogh plans, small pension plans, yep. doing that side because yep. when your your professor, full professor, was like you only were really working two days a week or three days. Got a it. Week. So he needs supplemental income mm-hmm. yeah. and a job. Got a lot of time, and so um, he told me about it a lot. And and when I was a broker, we used to do things together. 
So in those days, like you, you, cool. the most you could put into a Keo plan was, let's say, I think it was $7,500. So a third would go to buy insurance and two thirds would go to buy investments like a mutual fund. So mm -hmm. I'd be handling the mutual funds. And if I had a client that wanted a Keo plan, I would tell him to use to use my father-in-law for the insurance part and vice versa. He would tell him to use me for the investment. So I was handling $5,000 and I'd buy him a mutual fund. And maybe on that, I made uh, $300. He would take the money for the insurance, uh, which was $2,500, and he'd be making like $2,200. $2,500. And I said, oh, wait, I said, I'm in, the wrong, isn't it? Yeah, I said, I'm in the wrong end of the business. I got to do something about that. So ultimately, what I said was, you know, I, I think I want to be in, uh, you know, to him. I said, you have business. So he said, oh, great. We just do things together and whatever. So, um, I was doing it full time. He was still teaching and I sort of built the company. And um, what was the name became, of the company? Which was Hallman, which was his name, and Lauber Associates, oh, which, believe awesome. it or not, is still in existence. They still, handle really? yeah, they still handle pension plans for, for smaller companies. And of course, the rules are different you know, now than they were before, but uh, it, was, it was a good business and uh, made a bunch of money. And, and how then, long did you do that for? Sorry, just I did sorry. That I started that in '75, mm -hmm. and I was in it. I was in it for uh, for quite a while, into the '80s. Wow! I probably so did you it really in found your niche. Mm -hmm. yeah. It was a good partnership. In the mid '80s. Wow! Um, and then what happened is, a friend of mine uh, who was in the uh, in the other side of the insurance business, show property and casualty, not life insurance. Mm -hmm. He uh, worked for a, a big company that uh, was getting more into the insurance business. Um, it was the old publishing company, Harcourt Brace Jovanovich, which was a scholastic uh, book uh, publishing company. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said they would be interested in buying your, your life insurance and pension business. Wow. And I said, OK, I didn't know what I would sell because, you know, it's really salesman. It's not like you had assets, whatever. But yep. to make a long story short. I ended up selling the company to uh, to that to them, and uh, made made a bunch of money, and then was still running it, and 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 it was actually so you kept your your control within the company after selling it. I didn't have control. I worked for them, but you know we had a different financial arrangement. But mm -hmm. but it was good. I what 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 was the best part of it? The experience was that. You know, they were a very big public company. I had to do more reports. You know, I was used to doing things myself. <laughs> I had to send reports on everything. Okay. Mm -hmm. But you know what I realized after about six months? My business was a much better business because I always knew where we stood, what we were doing, um, financial controls. And I really made, you know, more money for them and for myself being part of it where I had to, I was much more held accountable uh, for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. it was, it was, you know, very serious in doing it the way they wanted to do it and what should have been done. So they were right because they're a big company, but I never thought about it when I had a small company, but I operated the small company as if it was a big company and it was, it was fantastic. I'm not saying I loved every single part of it, but it was fantastic. <laughs> So, so let's just take a moment. So you had sort of found a niche, grown it, developed it, enlarged it, sold it, kept in, kept within it, and then learned how to 
really run it so that there was an articulation and an accountability to it on a day-to-day basis. So that segues in. So you're famous for taking well-known but poorly managed brands and turning them into hugely successful and profitable businesses. So I I would suspect that comes from the backbone of this time of scrapping and building it. Yeah, it definitely helped. But I will say I started getting bored at some point (laughs) in that business. So uh, that is when I decided uh, Nathan's, the hot dog company, came up to say it was a public company. And a couple of guys I knew from the neighborhood were trying to take it private, but they couldn't raise the money. So they came to me and I figured out how to finance it. And we uh, took it private, took control control of the company. And that was like my model for the type of businesses I liked because it was a great brand name with very mediocre management. And what I learned is that, you know, that's the ideal situation to buy a company like that because it's it's funny. If you have a great brand name, a strong brand name, Mm -hmm. no matter how bad the management is, Mm -hmm. they generally survive in one form or another, okay? Maybe they're not growing, but they survive. And that's great because if it's a great name, a great brand name and great management, what could I do to make it better, you know? Uh, Probably nothing if they were great. So I started looking for, and that was sort of my business model then, a great brand name, not so good management. And Nathan's Nathan's was in that category for sure. Nathan's is absolutely a, a part of American history. It's associated for, for, for decades with every event possible. So the question yeah. is, how did you know how to find the right management? Because, again, these, there's a lot of moving parts and trusting and knowing that people are going to deliver. How do you manage that? You know what? In that case, it was, uh, and, and, you know, who knows, because they founded the company in uh, 1916, okay? Mm-hmm. And maybe they didn't want to grow it. You don't really know. Um, maybe they were happy with what they had. So I brought in some some new people, some younger people, and you know, came up with different ideas. Uh, like they had never franchised it. One of the first things we did is start doing franch- franchising. Right. And then later on, which is a big part of the business today, is we did a licensing agreement to sell Nathan's hot dogs in supermarkets. And that's uh, the biggest profit center, you know, right now of the company. Is that right? Um, yeah. Wow. And so, uh, for instance, during this period of time with the uh, um, coronavirus issues, yeah, um, the stores and the franchise is not doing well, right. but the supermarket sales, oh, you couldn't get on. enough product so, yeah. because everyone was going to the supermarket buying, buying, you know, frozen goods because they were worried about not having food. So we did very well, uh, you know, in that part. Sustaining of the business. that, right? Yeah, not so well in the other parts, but we still did, you know, we still did, we had, we had a pretty good year because of that. And then I also, along the way, around the same time, I started working with a, with a fellow that I had met um, in a bar restaurant a few years before that was a real entrepreneur. He, um, he was buying and selling companies, rebuilding them, and so forth. And, um, I actually had started doing some business with him when I was in the insurance business, you know, when he had some issues with some of the pension plans for the uh-huh. companies and so forth. Okay. And so he at the time had bought control of the old Western Union uh, company. Oh my gosh. Which by the way, was started in the 1800s. Oh okay? my gosh, that's and right. Another situation of yeah. a great brand name. Wow. Lousy management. Wow. So um, we did, we, we sort of segued out of, out of, well, 
telex went out of business pretty much went out of business when fax machines came in right right so <laughs> telex business was going way down got it and um we so went into mm-hmm. yeah you know, we went into the money transfer business and we owed, there was a lot of debt on the company. There was like a billion dollars of debt at very high interest rates from the eighties. And, uh, but we were able to, uh, put it into a bankruptcy and restructure it. And during that period of time, build up the money transfer business and ultimately sold the money transfer business, um, in a bankruptcy court auction for about a one point, I think it was about $1.4 billion. So we, we owed a billion, so we paid off all the debt and now we had a company with wow. nothing to operate, $400 million wow. in uh, care. Brilliant. And that, by the way, is the company today that's Vector Group and also owns Douglas Elliman. Okay, so, so, so I'm jumping around a bit. So how, how why Douglas Elliman? Tell me how that came to be. Well, Douglas Elliman, it, it fit, it fit the, the pattern where I'm just telling you another yep. company with great, a great name started in, uh, 1911. Okay. And, uh, I, I wouldn't say bad management. I think one of the problems there was the fact that they were sold a few times pretty mm-hmm. quickly. So mm-hmm. you didn't really have the ability. And, um, yes, I think it was partially the management they chose, um, that I didn't, didn't think was great, but having said that, um, I had, I had already gone into the real estate business, um, with, uh, by buying a, a share in Dottie Herman's company. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had a partner at the time. It was called Prudential Long Island Realty. Got it. And, uh, came to me as a deal <laughs> where they need some money because they're in financial trouble. So <laughs> put in some money and, uh, met Dottie. She was great. Met the partner. He was a disaster. And so I know why. <laughs> successful because you wouldn't let Dottie do what she was capable of doing. And so uh, we had to make some changes there and did it. And then we wanted to come into the city. And um, I, I had known that the per- I knew the person that owned Douglas Selman at the time. He owned two companies. He owned Douglas Selman on the residential side. And he owned um, a company called Edward S. Gordon, which was a commercial real estate broker. Quite a good one also. So he had owned both the companies. And it was public. It was called the Insignia. Uh-huh. Yes. The stock was not doing very well. Because lots of times, these, you know, um, businesses and uh, whether it's commercial, residential, real estate, they're cyclical businesses. They don't yes. go straight up. Correct. And the stock market likes companies that have constant earnings growth, right? They don't like going up and down and up and down. Too scary. So it wasn't doing. Mm-hmm. I, I had a feeling that he was going to sell um, the company. And I called them and I said, look, I'd love to buy Douglas Elman. Um, and he said, well, we're not selling it now. And it was about six months after that, I was going into my office, my office building, and I got in the elevator and I looked up and the owner or the, or the principal stockholder and the CEO of the parent company uh, was on the elevator. So I said, hello, everyone. <laughs> said hello everyone. He got, he got off at a, at a lower floor. I went up to my floor and the first thing I did was call down to the concierge desk downstairs and ask them who was on the third, I think it was the 32nd floor, who was on the 32nd floor. <laughs> and so I found out it was a private equity company. And with a little uh-huh. research, I found out that that private equity company he went to see was uh, wow. owned 
oh. and C.B. Richard Ellis, which was oh a big commercial yes, right. real estate broker. Mm-hmm. So I just had that feeling he was going to sell that business. The and the Howard intuition kicked in. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I call him. I know he's not in his office, but I call him in his office and I leave him a long voicemail. And I basically said, look, I said, I know where you are. I know who you're seeing. I know you're probably there trying to sell, uh, you know, Edward S. Gordon to CBRE. I want to buy Douglas Salmon. Call me. So a few hours later, he called me. He said, how did you know? I said, well, it was pretty easy. And I told him the story. <laughs> so we left. And he said, you know, I would I, I, I would do it. But here's my problem. I'm ready to sign a deal with another company that's also in your business, in, in the real estate business. Mm-hmm. But we have a problem because we will need uh, uh, permission from the FTC because th- between them, they had a big market share in the city. So they would have had an antitrust problem. So I said, look, I have no problem because I don't have anything in the city. So if you just send me the contract, I'll pay you the same money. We don't need the FTC approval. We could get the deal done quick. And uh, he agreed. And that's how it happened. And that's, that's how amazing. That's amazing. Wow. Um, so in that vein, um, do you have advice or thoughts on how to use boom times as a way to prepare for the busts and vice versa, as we now are in such a tailspin? Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, you know, when, when you talk about tailspins, look, you have to start off with the basics. OK, um, people are not going to stop if, as it relates to like Douglas Solomon. People are not going to stop buying real estate. OK. Um, they may change their habits for short times, but as I, as I've always believed, I said, you know, uh, Americans seem to have a very short memory of bad events. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, this is sort of worse than a bad event. Yeah. <laughs> this is a very bad event. That yeah. We've had, okay. Yeah. So I'm not belittling it. Historic. And, uh, yeah. You know, if you look at nine 11, you can say, wow, that was a horrendous event. And it was, and you know, uh, terrible lose 3000 people and one event like that. But having said that. The markets recovered, the real estate recovered. It took, and it didn't take a long time because after September 11th, there was no business till January 1st of the next year. So a few months, five months. And then we made up all the business we didn't do in the prior four months, plus a good first quarter in the new year. A hundred percent. I think people and thought downtown was over, but no one would live downtown. Yeah, and it's now okay. rallied more than uptown. Okay, downtown, downtown. Mm-hmm. So I don't think New York is over uh, and everyone points to New York. And, and I'll say this, I think New York had its issues before this and basically because of the politics of New York, because of, of the government in New York. And whenever they needed money, they tried to take it from the real estate industry. And it just doesn't work because all you're doing is going to push people to go to lower tax or no tax states. And that's really what's happened. That's exactly and what's that's happening. What's happening now. Yeah. But ultimately, people don't want it. And there were people, look, there's no city in the world like New York. Okay, and I didn't know New York that well because I grew up in New Jersey and, you know, lived in Long Island for a while to like, you know, to to raise my kids. And then when they went off, moved into the city and and I I have a a 180 degree different view of what it was, what I thought it would be. Um, I I think it's the greatest. I I just thought it'd be weird to raise children in New York City. Mm -hmm. Okay, Mm -hmm. and I see now it has so much more to offer. Okay, I think it's I think it's the greatest place to to raise a family. Now, I'll qualify it. I'm saying I I, I'll qualify it and say that I think it's the greatest place to live and raise a family 
if you have someplace else to go sometimes on the weekends <laughs> and in the winter. I mean, and, and I truly believe that. I, you know, would I want to be there 365 days a year? They, no. Okay. Yeah. But, there, and there's always going to be people, uh, no matter what, um, that want to be in New York or have to be in New York because of their jobs and so yeah. forth. Now, that may change a little bit also yes, now. Yes, I was just going to say, home. we're dealing I with I think all home. those things are going to have an effect, but it's not going to mean that New York real estate is going to be worthless. New York real estate is, is, is always going to be valuable. And uh, at different times, it'll be more valuable than at other times. And this one may be, take a little bit longer. Um, I'm sure it'll take a little bit longer than the four months of uh, 9-11. But even the financial crisis, you know, that was a couple of years and uh, that hurt a lot of places. Uh, and everyone was wrong about that also, because I remember them saying that in Miami, there's a 10-year supply of uh, unsold uh, condos. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in 18 months, the 10-year supply was gone. So, you know, things change rapidly. And look, if you look at the stock market today and where yeah. it is, yeah. almost back to where it was before this, it's it's actually amazing and shows you the resilience of uh, of, of the country. And uh, luckily, Do you think it's we're in a very low. For now? Do you think it will adjust again? No, again? look, it could be. It could, I'm sure it's not going to go straight up. Nothing generally goes straight <laughs> up. But you've had a three and a half year run where it pretty much went straight up. So it was due for a correction anyway. I would have preferred the correction to just happen without having COVID to have to deal with it. <laughs> and, you know, and, and now the issues, you know, uh, yeah. in the country that are going on, it would be better off if we didn't have that. But having said that, that by no means is that the end of, uh, you know, end of New York City. No, that's just that's just not happening. Uh, but we do see people going to other markets. We see people going to Florida, uh, which is a yes, no income tax, tax state, mm -hmm. uh, no income tax state and no state state tax also. So big deal um, for people, especially know, at good. this time. In and, and then you have then you have Texas and then you have Nevada. You know, and then you have a bunch of low, low, low tax states, you know, so there's a shift without question, slow shift. But I still say, forget about all those other ones. There's no place like no place like New York City. It's just I, just, just I would agree. No I agree. Are there any well, well, some of the trends, what may happen? Mm. And I think more so because of the COVID. And uh, I don't know if I spoke to you about this, Francis, but but I really think that it's going to be a resurgence. A lot of people are going to. There will be resurgence to buying single-family homes, buy townhouses. In the I city. was just going to yes, that's right? been a big change in in very high net worth people who are now preferring yeah. to buy townhomes. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like I love I love the building I'm in at 432 Park, great building. But realistically, okay, you know, you, you buy a building like that because you have all these great things in the building. The and then what happened? You, you can't have use a problem them. like we had with COVID. And then the first thing is they they close the gym, so now you don't have a gym anymore. Second thing is they close the spa. Third thing they close the pool. Yeah. Fourth thing is they close the uh, the other amenity rooms like the theater mm -hmm. and the billiard room, mm -hmm. and then they close the restaurant. So <laughs> within within a relatively short period of time, there's no place, nothing you could do in an apartment except stay there. And and, and I started thinking about it. And I said, man, if you had your own house in the city, okay, <laughs> if you had your own house in the city, you could have all those things in your house. Okay, and also not have to be with anyone else, not have to go in an elevator with other mm -hmm. people. So there are advantages, mm -hmm. and I say it because I think just as a value proposition, townhouses through this whole booms time and the last boom, the townhouse prices are lower now than they were yes. before. Yes, they right? are. Mm -hmm. So I think that's because they couldn't be, compete uh, with the amenity or the full services of what people exactly. wanted, which is someone to come and do bed and, turn. And if God forbid someone in your family gets sick. 
for quarantine purposes. You know, I know. they have their own floor. Yeah. You, you know, you don't have to start the. I, I just think it's a uh, quarantine. Maybe yep. maybe short lived because people we all have the COVID on our minds now. But I'm not so sure it's so short lived, and I, and I think it's something that's really interesting uh, to for buyers to look. at. It's very true. Are there any industries that you haven't invested in that you have wanted to for quite some time now? And if so, what's uh, holding you back? No, not 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 really. I I mean I, I never really was industry specific. I was uh, you know potential specific. If a business has potential, and again. If you go back to what I look for, great brand name, okay? Bad not so good poor management, yeah, right. That's so good management. Those companies never seem to die, okay? Yeah. And therefore, I think those are the things. And if I look at the three, you know, best deals that I ever did, you know, one of them was Western Union, we fit that category. One of them was Nathan's and one of them was Douglas Selman. <laughs> so I think, you know, I sort of stick to that, to that thinking. And would look for something in that in those categories if something came up. You know, I'm going to sort of go off the questions and just say, do you feel like you've done it all at this point? No, not not at all. Not at no? all. I, I, I you know, uh, look, I love what I do, and I think you you know this, Francis. I mean, the fact is, um, I, I love. I spend my whole day when I was in the office. My whole day would be meeting brokers. <laughs> I know. And, the day went so fast. I, I loved it. it. It was great. And I think that my job is to help them make money. And I love the business. So have. why not? It's just sort of nat it's natural for me. Uh, that's why I say a salesman, because, you know, what am I doing? I'm being a salesman, trying to help them be a better so, salesman. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, Howard, I have to tell you, as someone who's observed working for you for over a decade, I have never met anyone who's been more consistent in returning calls to people in real time. And you're a chairman yeah. of many companies, you know? You know, I learned that early on. I decided early on, I, I, I made a rule for myself. I said, I'm going to return every phone call every day even if it's to say, look, I'm really swamped today. I'll call you tomorrow morning. But I, will not, I try not to let a call go by that I don't either return and take care of whatever the issue is or just to say that, look, I'm swamped today. Let's talk tomorrow morning. And that you was the rule I've had for, you know, my whole my whole business life. And let me tell you something. It speaks volumes because out of 7,500 people or agents, in one company, you have managed to maintain um, a pulse on your people. It's it's incredible. Everyone says it. They said they've never seen anything like it. It's really unbelievable. Um, well, because I like it. I couldn't do it if I didn't like it, right? You do, care. You do care. You're yeah. very caring about what you Every do. Every time that I can help a broker make a sale or get a listing or whatever, I feel like it's, 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 also, it's also my win. Yes. We did it. We did it together. You know, I'm part of it. And, and I like that. You've certainly shown me um, through the years how to really handle business, um, <laughs> the good, the bad, and the ugly. And you've yeah. been honest with me throughout all of it. And I have to say, it has been one of the best parts of working um, as a broker. Um, Even though you may have not liked everything I said. Bad, true. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Can I ask you a question? What's your greatest professional success? Um, you know... I don't really look at it that way. Look, I, I think I'm a very lucky guy. I have two great children. 
Uh, one of them's in the business. One of them works for me in a family office out in Long Island. I have two great grandchildren. And we're very, you know, uh, we're very close. We're a very close group. And so you may not say that's a professional success, but as far as what is the success, I think that's really my, my, my greatest happiness and my greatest success. Mm. The legacy of relationships with family. Yeah. yeah. And by the way, and how many, how many brokers, you know, that I really consider friends like you and, and, and probably dozens of other ones, you yeah. know, I mean, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. Yeah. It really is fantastic. It's, it's mutual. You know, you have been an active member of the Jewish community for as far as back as I can remember. President Donald Trump himself tapped you to head the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Council. Would you mind sharing a little bit about uh, that process sure. for you? We've covered sure. a little bit about your family background, sure. but, you know, there was it's a very touch, touching point for you. You've, I've seen you really get quite touched by it. So can you speak yeah. to a little bit about that? Sure. Sure. Well, first of all, I know uh, I know the president from when he was just a regular real estate guy in New York City. So I've known him for probably 35 years. Uh, never thought I'd see the day he was president, but, you know, here we were and it happened. And um, he asked me uh, to come see him uh, after he won and to discuss what I wanted to do. Mm. And I thought I knew what that meant. I wasn't so sure, but of course, what it was, is there's there something in Washington you want to do. And I basically was pretty quick in telling them, no, I surely did not want to give up things I love to do to get involved with uh, politics in Washington, D.C. Was that, it an that interesting was, idea for a moment? Did you, did it even, no, did you, no, no, really? No, it, wasn't hmm. it wasn't interesting because before he had called me, I already thought, you know, that would happen. Mm -hmm. And I started asking around about what I could do that I would enjoy. And mm -hmm. I actually, you know, had a, uh, had a good friend um, from Denver that basically, you know, there are, there are basically 4,000 presidential appointments any <laughs> president can make. About, about 1,000 of them require Senate confirmation, which is that whole tedious mm -hmm. process. And about 3,000 are just appointments you can appoint only once. So I'm speaking to my friend. He sent me the list. You know, so I had the list that I'm looking. And then I said to him, so Norman, I said, what do you think? He said, well, Howard, I'm going to tell you something. If you could get the appointment as the chairman of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, it would be the greatest thing for you in the world. And he then gave me the name of a, uh, a former person that was, uh, that was named cha chairman of the museum by, uh, by Bush. And he told me what the guy was going to say, but I went, I called the guy, he's from Texas, and I, and I waited for him to say, and he basically said to me the same thing that my friend Norman said. He said, Howard, it was life changing for me. That's what he said, life changing. Wow. And so wow. I, I was pretty, I, I was pretty convinced. And then also my, in my background, because of what happened to the Greek Jewish population mm -hmm. in World War II, Mm -hmm. um, and I've actually gone with my children to uh, Saloniki. I saw the train station where they where they loaded the Jews onto oh, the uh, black cars, and um, you know I, I oh, really I got very much involved in learning a lot about it. Mm -hmm. uh, my youngest son, who's a who's a great history person, as soon as I told him I was going to 
do this or wanted to do it is he probably sent me 50 books because he said that I don't want you to embarrass us you better read up on everything that happened <laughs> uh, I read most of them and um, I decided it's what I want to do so when I went to see him I knew what I wanted to do and um, it, it was uh, it was interesting conversation but you know he uh, I think he was surprised um, really? but, but, yeah Why? Because he was thinking other things, and, and, mm -hmm. and I, was honest, I was honest with him. I said, "Look, I said if I wanted to come to Washington, okay, the only other thing that I would really consider, and, and I'm not saying this because I'm considering it or did consider it, but the only thing I would consider if I wanted to go to Washington to begin with, start with that, is I say that I, I would really like to take a run at uh, being the head of the uh, VA." Wow. And the reason, and the reason I said I said mm -hmm. that was because number one, I was never in the armed services, so I feel that what's left to serve your country, because and also like a lot of these companies I've been involved with, the VA was such a mess. I know yes. I couldn't fix it. I couldn't. No way you could fix it, but I know you could make it better. Mm -hmm. It actually made it better. You know, the biggest the biggest thing that was done, okay, was was the fact where. If you're trying to get an appointment in a VA hospital, uh, a veteran, and you can't get one within a week or two weeks, you can go to anyone you want to go and send a bill to the That's VA. Right. And they, That's brilliant. That never happened before. People died waiting to see. So it was a combination of, um, you know, that, but that fact I didn't want to go to Washington, so it didn't really matter about the VA. But because of everything I learned from what happened to the Jews in Saloniki and Jews from all over the place, you know, six million. Um, perish that um, I had a strong, strong desire, and then I always remembered when my when my grandfather died when I was about three or four years old. Mm -hmm. I remember asking my grandmother what happened to my grandfather, and I remember her telling me that you know, you know, we lost like every single relative and every person we knew perished and was sent to Auschwitz and perished, and we were lucky enough to leave very early. And, you know, and obviously that's why we're here. And, you know, it really got to me because I didn't know what he, what she meant was that's why he died young. I didn't know whether that God sure. forbid meant that he took his life or whatever. Sure. And, I, and I always like, you know, was upset that I really didn't get into it more, but mm. I was a kid at the yeah. time. It's hard to so know really, how to ask a question like so that. I didn't really, I didn't really think about it. But so there were those things that, you know, were, you know, and then growing up, in a household where, you know, my grandmother made the Greek food and the customs and stuff. And, and also the bad part of it was I never learned any Yiddish or Hebrew. That's too bad. That's they, had too their bad. Own they had their own language. They had, they had a language called Ladino, which is similar to Spanish, but with different, a little bit different than Spanish. I had and no that's idea. what they all spoke. Because yeah. the original Jews that ended up in Greece all came from, from pretty much from Spain during the Inquisition. So... They spoke their own. They spoke their own language. Oh, dialect. My gosh, yeah. I did not know that. That's so. You found it to be incredibly. It is. Meaningful. It is. It is. It is amazing. Yeah, it, it really is. Jeez, the people are so dedicated, and you get to meet. We meet survivors. That is less and less each year. I know. But, um, but it, it's the most humbling and, and and also at the same time interesting and exciting experience. Um. It, it really is. It's it's it is it is a, a change of life. It's it's something that is just uh, beyond description. Um, and now you know now it's a tough time also for the museum. <laughs> so 
you know, we're basically creating a, uh, a, uh, a Zoom museum or something. You know, yeah. it's, it's hard. And who knows when these things will reopen? Yeah. Uh, you, really, you really don't know. Uh, the good thing about the uh, Holocaust Museum is that it's a quasi-federal institution because half of the funding comes from the government, from the federal okay. government. Okay. Um, so uh, it's it's a little bit easier. Uh, as you saw in that first bill, they gave money to uh, the Kennedy Center. Yes. Which was criticized. But having said that, it is an important place. It's a and, hugely and, important and, place. And it when surrounds they closed the down, well. they have when they closed that down, there was no revenue because they had they, their revenue came from came from performances. Yes, and I performed there. And restaurants yes. in there, and the museum is not quite in that position. So uh, you know, so I was at first I said, "Wow, why you know that is that really where you want to spend money?" But then I thought about it and I said, "You know what? Yeah, I think that was a I think that was a good thing." I, I danced at the Kennedy Center. That's a huge yeah. uh, ground. Yeah. Well, that was an honor. Dance at the Kennedy Center. It was, sure. it was an absolute honor. Um, may I ask you, what keeps the fire burning within you and keeps you going? Look, I, I, I think the one thing you don't want to do is get bored. Okay. I used to say, whenever I got bored, I got in trouble for doing something I shouldn't have done. So I don't want to be bored. You know, I make a bad investment, I make a bad things. So I rather, I rather keep busy. So as long as I'm, you know, healthy and which I am and can work, I'm, I'm going to keep doing it. I'm I think keep that's doing fantastic. It. I mean, I think there's been conversations about you retiring or selling the company. Um, yeah. I mean, can we talk yeah. about that? White that's always going to. That's always going to. Look, I never comment on rumors. They're all rumors. Um, but I will say that every company, when COVID started, pretty much every company spoke to every other company. <laughs> <laughs> like, what are we going to do? You know, what's going to happen? <laughs> you know, whatever. And my guess is by the time this is all over, there will be some companies that get together, whatever. You know, who knows? Mm -hmm. you, you never know. Look, I will always do. Would you ever I, sell it to a group, a consortium? Would you allow people within the look, company? I, 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 never, I never say never. Okay. okay. I never say never. Uh, everything so is politically always, correct. As long as, as long as I believe that I'm, I'm protecting the uh the employees and our brokers that's really all i care about okay and i'm surely i'm not the only one in the world that can do that so i i think you know whatever but right now we're, we're stabilized we have a lot of money in the parent company so we don't need to do anything but i'm sure there are others around that will need to do something um can you know at some point Got it. I mean, can you summarize what you what we can expect from new york real estate markets through the end of this year no, I wish I knew. You know what? I yeah. think we'll know pretty much after we open. But the markets, as we know, look, look Long Island has been good. Yeah. Because people are going to the suburbs. The Hamptons and Connecticut. Been great. Yep. Mm -hmm. been great. Connecticut, Westchester picked up. Uh, South Florida in, in Miami and Palm Beach is booming. Yep. Okay. California is sort of like in between. And those are the important, those are the important markets. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and and uh, the uh, city, you really don't know. Because there were deals left over from before, it, it looks right now that we're probably running at about maybe fifty percent of what we were pre wow. pre COVID, but that could be a little bit less. Some of that may have been old deals that are just finally getting done now. But I think we'll know pretty much a few months after, and surely by the end of the year, we'll have a pretty good idea where we are. And we've made some moves to make sure that we're okay 
Um, and I said, and we have, you know, a lot of money in the parent company, which uh, we can use if we need to. Um, so I, I think, uh, I think it's good. I mean, okay. I, honestly, if there was someone for us to take over, that was a good buy and put it together and be mm -hmm. better for everyone. I would surely, I would surely be happy to look at it. Interesting. Okay. And what kind of advice would you give to people who are entering their career, <laughs> starting in this business now? Well, look, I think it's, a, I think, I think, <laughs> no, I think it's the greatest business in the world. You know, it was the same about the insurance business. What business can you get in where you don't have to have any money? Mm -hmm. Okay. You, you, you don't even have to really be that educated. Okay. <laughs> I mean, education is important. Yep. I mean, the, the one common thread in great brokers is doesn't have to, you don't have to have money. You don't have to be the smartest guy on the block. What you have to be is have a tremendous work ethic. You have to work like a dog. Yep. And I know you're like that. And that yep. is the way you can be very successful in, in the real estate business, but probably also in almost every other sales business. You outwork everyone else and you'll be very, very, very successful. And in your opinion, is there someone along your journey who you would credit as your mentor or as the culmination of, is it a combination of people for your yes, success? It's a combination. I'd say on the business side, uh, you know, Ben LeBeau, who was the guy that had Western Union and I met mm -hmm. him and we did started doing things together. And then, you know, then I ended up, uh, you know, working with him for years and he's retired now. I would say that, uh, that he was one of them, but there was, there was so many others, you know, as you go along, as you go along the path, you know, in different businesses and so forth, um, you know, and you sort of try to pick pieces out. Um, I, I'd say my father-in-law in the, in the beginning was, mm -hmm. was very, very important uh, to me. Um, because, you know, I was a kid, you know, trying to sell professional type of things like, mm -hmm. like stock, bonds, mm -hmm. or shirts, whatever. And um, he was the gray haired guy, although I got gray pretty quick. And, <laughs> you know, he was a CPA. He was a former IRS agent. So it was sort of bird's eye view. My yeah. hard work, his, his credibility. You know, yeah. I built it on, especially on his credibility. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, I have to say, um, this has been very special to me. Thank you for taking the time to sit My pleasure. and My do pleasure. this. You're amazing at been, what you do. And it's been, very, it's been very special working with you for all these years, Francis. Oh, I'm going to get all chuffed now, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. Stay safe, stay well. Okay, you too. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. Thank you. Bye.